This program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the stunningly consistent history of the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, which was born out of a need for oil and sustained for the sake of an empire. Clips today come from The Empire Files, The Inquiry, On the Media, Intercepted, The Daily, Last Week Tonight, and The Real News. The land that would become Saudi Arabia was once four distinct regions, encircled and partially owned by the Turkish Empire. Its hidden treasure was yet to be discovered, so the barren land went largely ignored by colonial powers. At the dawn of the 20th century, one man followed his wealthy family's footsteps to achieve a modest dream. To be a king and rule supreme over a diverse region. In a little over 20 years, through pillaging and conquering the countryside, Ibn Saad declared himself king in 1925. In 1927, he was recognized by the United Kingdom as ruler of the realm. But he already had a revolt on his hands by the same religious militia that he had depended on to rise to power. So he massacred them. And by 1932, Ibn Saud's kingdom of Saudi Arabia was complete. He had tried but failed to also capture the southern territory that is Yemen today. His 45 sons became the heirs to power and profit in Saudi Arabia. With the conclusion of World War I, the victorious empires carved up the land, but still weren't concerned with the seemingly worthless expanse. While European powerhouses laid claim to the region's riches, the new royal overlords found something beneath their feet, the pivot of the modern industrial economy. Knowing it had some amount of oil in unknown locations and a low level of technological development, the Saudi family elicited the help of foreign oil companies. In the post-World War I feeding frenzy, the British and French empires cut American oil companies out of the region's known oil reserves. Eager to find new sources, the company known as Chevron today staked claim to Saudi Arabia's hidden oil fields in 1933 and struck big after five years of drilling. The discovery was unprecedented in size. The Arabian American Oil Company was formed to cash in on the bubbling profits. This Arabian-American oil company was actually 100% owned by American companies. Mobil, with 10%, and Exxon, Texaco, and Chevron, each with 30%. Aramco paid royalties to the Saudi family for exclusive rights to the fields. Only making a fraction of what the oil giants were making, the profits were so vast that the Saudi monarchy grew even more obscenely wealthy. During World War II, Italian bombing crippled Saudi Arabian oil production. It was a wake-up call to the kingdom and Aramco. It needed protection. Badly. Throughout the war, the U.S. empire began to increasingly recognize the geostrategic importance of Saudi Arabia's vast oil reserves. So in 1943, President Roosevelt declared that the defense of Saudi Arabia is vital to the defense of the United States. On behalf of the oil companies, the U.S. government deemed oil a national priority. They wanted cheap oil, hegemony over the region's resources, and a military garrison to enforce its domination. The Saudi royal family wanted fat paychecks, and above all, to have its power protected. 
1945, an official oil for protection deal was made through President Roosevelt, securing a U.S. air and naval base in Saudi Arabia and unchallenged oil access. The U.S. then rebuilt and protected Saudi Arabia's bombed oil fields. The monarchy was pumped full of cash, training, and military equipment. Its protection from both external and internal threats promised by the Pentagon. Indeed, the fragile Saudi kingdom was challenged. In 1953, in the eastern province, a hotbed of socialist organizing, workers at Aramco went on strike demanding a union. That same year, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia began the U.S. military training mission, which continues to this day, teaching the Saudi monarchs how to crush those types of annoyances. So when Aramco workers went on strike three years later, the kingdom had all the strike leaders swiftly assassinated. A new royal decree forbade any type of pro-worker demonstration. And they had shown just how far they would go to enforce it. In 1962, with a revolution that believed oil profits belonged to the people and not kings at its doorstep, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and the United Kingdom supported the royalists' bloody counter-revolution in Yemen. Washington started sending squadrons of F-100 fighter jets to the Saudi kingdom. But this mutually beneficial relationship was not always expressed as complete subservience. The colonial project known as Israel caused a temporary rift between the empire and the Saudi monarchs, whose own base was fervently opposed to the Israeli ethnic cleansing, as well as fearing the Israeli aggression. By 1973, when the war broke out, the Saudi monarchs had to take a harder position. So the kingdom used the only leverage it had, cutting off oil to any country supporting Israel's expansion. Involving 12 oil-producing countries in the region, the Saudi-led oil embargo caused an energy crisis in the U.S. The price of oil quadrupled overnight, and gas prices skyrocketed. But while Saudi princes were flexing their oil muscle, the U.S. government was never really too worried about losing its access. All the oil in the world cannot trump the biggest military in the world. If we were pushed absolutely against the wall, we might secure the oil uh, by our own means. Nixon and Kissinger never had to bomb the monarchs for their oil. The noble House of Saud, which had stood up so heroically for indigenous Palestinians against colonialism, was wooed by a more persuasive argument. Killing indigenous people resisting colonialism in Vietnam. The Nixon administration pointed out to the royal family that the real threat to them was communism, not Israel. The Saudi kings had been watching U.S. stooges and dictators overthrown by people's movements the world over, fully aware of their own mortality. And that was all it took to get the oil flowing again. And they, along with royal partners like Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, were lavishly rewarded for it in an oil boom that's been called the most dramatic transfers of wealth in human history. had virtually no appurtenances of modern life. There were no telephones, there were very few schools, and there was no public transportation or mass communication of any kind. This is 1930s Saudi Arabia, as described by Thomas Lipman, former Middle East Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. 
country was surrounded by British colonial presence across the Middle East. Saudi Arabia's founding monarch, King Abdulaziz ibn Saud, knew the United States had no colonial history in the region. And so as he was looking for great power protection for development assistance, the United States was an appealing target to him. Back then, the only American presence in Saudi Arabia was a few missionaries and a company searching for oil. That all changed with World War II. President Roosevelt's energy advisors perceived that after this war ended, the United States would begin to need more oil than it could itself produce. So by the middle of the war, there was a new interest in the American government doing some business with Saudi Arabia. The U.S. wanted rights to explore Saudi Arabia for oil, and the Saudis, for their part... They wanted a couple of things. One was capital and technology for development, of which they had none themselves. And the other basically was protection from Britain. And so an unlikely courtship began. And it was King Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia who made the first move. He had heard that President Roosevelt loved stamp collecting. And he put together a collection of truly exotic and rare stamps from the Gulf region and sent them to President Roosevelt as a gift. And President wrote back with a very gracious letter. The plans began for the two leaders to meet. And in 1945, they finally came face to face. An American destroyer comes alongside a cruiser in Great Bitter Lake on the Suez Canal in Egypt. It brings Ibn Saud, king of the five million people of Saudi Arabia, to a conference with President Roosevelt. Remember that these are two men from the opposite poles of civilization. President Roosevelt is this American blue blood who had been educated at Harvard. The king had no formal education, had never traveled outside the Arabian Peninsula, and actually bore sword scars on his body from battles. On board, it became apparent just how contrasting the worlds they inhabited were. The king planned to bring with him several of his wives, and he also showed up at the pier with a couple of hundred sheep because he and his entourage would have to have fresh meat every day. And so there ensued this bizarre cultural negotiation until they finally overcame all these obstacles. And so the talks began. Both leaders wanted to forge a close relationship. So what did they discuss? One of the biggest issues was what to do with Palestine. The British were about to abandon their mandate of the region at the end of the war. There was, of course, considerable agitation by this time to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And Roosevelt wanted the king to be flexible on that subject. The king wasn't as forthcoming, and in the end, a compromise. They agreed not to disagree. The president said that the United States would make no final conclusion about Palestine without consultation with all the parties. The king took that to mean that he had a veto, which he didn't really. But two months after that meeting, President Roosevelt died. Now, there was another man in charge, Harry Truman. Who didn't know any more about Arabs than you know about men on the moon. And in the end, 
He agreed to the partition of Palestine, much to the dismay and fury of King Abdulaziz. And what did he do? Nothing. He was urged by other Arab leaders to revoke the American oil concession to punish the United States for this perfidy. But he refused, telling the Arab leaders, You can afford to make that kind of gesture, but I can't. And with that decision to suck it up and say nothing, he established a pattern that persists in which the two countries often find each other's policies disagreeable, if not downright dangerous, but their mutual dependence has allowed them to overcome all those disagreements and maintain the relationship that you see today. The two parties would do whatever it took to bag the deals they wanted, and sometimes it meant one of them having the upper hand. Another head-scratcher is why, for so long, the American press seemed to be doing the Saudi royals' PR work, too. 32-year-old Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince better known as MBS, arresting many of his own cousins in a sweeping crackdown on corruption. Guarded as one of the most conservative countries in the world, Saudi Arabia is an authoritarian, absolute monarchy where women's rights are extremely limited. But under MBS, Things are changing rapidly. He is emancipating women, introducing music and cinema, and cracking down on corruption. In effect, he's leading a revolution from above. It's a fawning characterization that Jamal Khashoggi disputed in an interview with NPR earlier this year. He has no interest in political reform. He thinks he can do it alone. And he doesn't want really any counter-opinion or anyone to share those changes in Saudi Arabia with him. As New York Times media columnist Jim Rutenberg noted, the MBS moniker has taken on a grim new meaning for what he refers to as the plugged-in set of Washington. MBS is now Mr. Bonesaw. A new perspective for the Washington set, perhaps, but not for those who have been paying closer attention. Georgetown professor Abdullah Al-Aryan last year assembled a timeline of 70 years of the New York Times describing Saudi royals as reformers. Abdullah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start in 53. The headline you chose was, New King Plans to Use Nation's Oil Income to Finance Social and Economic Measures. That headline could have been written last year. I'm thinking of Thomas Friedman's piece in November titled, Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring. At last, the crown prince has big plans for his society. Yeah, that's really the the hitch with this narrative is the fact that it's constantly on the brink of being that kind of enlightened, reformed, progressive society, you know, regardless of which king, which monarch happens to be in power at the time, they're always just aspiring towards something, but just never quite seems to get there. Which reminds me of the headline in 1960, King Saud has increasingly assumed the role of liberal champion of constitutional reform. And you note that the Saudi constitution wouldn't be adopted for another 32 years in 1992. 
Right. And, and even then, the, the Constitution was only adopted by royal decree and not actually as part of any sort of political opening that was inclusive of the rest of society. What do you think drives that kind of anticipation? These narratives tend to be constructed as part of a process by which the United States is attempting to justify its policies in the region, attempting to justify its alliances on the basis purely of preserving its own interests. But then again, we also have dismemberments and beheadings and the oppression of women and so on, as we see it in the West. And the government has to negotiate that thorny territory. But it seems like the media has been a willing partner in that. You know, we have a kind of binary approach to viewing Saudi Arabia, I do think that it it tends to be problematic, not just on the one side in which, of course, they're presented constantly as reformers, but then there's also the sort of very stereotypical views as these barbaric civilizations and the kind of Orientalist lens through which the Middle East is often viewed lends itself to a kind of a carrot and stick approach. So on the one hand, you paint them in a very kind of villainous role, and then you give them the opportunity to reform and to become enlightened. And the best example of that, I would say, is, is really looking just at this last year with the Saudi crown prince. This new generation of Saudi elites has internalized these narratives over the course of many decades and actually come to play into them by essentially trying to placate certain liberal sensibilities, things like granting women the right to drive or reopening movie theaters knowing that these kinds of things could be used as cover for things like a massive consolidation of power and a massively reckless and violent foreign policy that, of course, has has seen its brutality taken out on the people of Yemen. This is sort of par for the course in terms of the way that everyone's bought into the first line while kind of ignoring the second. Did you see uh, Rula Khalif's recent article in the Financial Times? Yeah. She was talking about how Western journalists love to see every new leader in the region as a reformer first before proven otherwise. What do you think about that pattern? Well, I mean, I, I think that speaking about them as reformers is really just code for will they be reliable allies who will protect and preserve kind of U.S. interests in the region. And that's really the only measure. If you live up to these kind of expectations, you can expect to be showered with more praise, with more promises of aid and support and you know glowing media coverage. The article mentions a lot of examples, including Assad, Gaddafi and others. Members of Congress of both parties have said they believe he's a reformer. Muammar Gaddafi's second son was once regarded as the man who would bring Libya closer to the West. I mean, one that comes to mind is Saddam Hussein that's not mentioned. And I think it's interesting to see how his transformation occurred as someone who was a modernizer, someone who was seen as a reliable ally, specifically during the eight-year war with Iran in the 1980s. And then, of course, the moment that he breaks with the U.S. and decides to launch his own aggressive foreign policy, specifically with his invasion of Kuwait in 1990, all of a sudden he becomes this sort of brutal dictator. All of a sudden people are paying attention to human rights abuses as though they didn't exist in the 1980s. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that summarizes more than 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books, packing all the key insights into blinks that you can read or have read to you as an audiobook in just 15 minutes or so. Now, I personally love the idea of being extremely well-read, but to be honest, it's hard to decide to reach for a thick nonfiction book during my small amount of downtime from listening to my endless string of political shows I'm using for research, so Blinkist has really been a game-changer for me. I've used it to get the 
summaries of dozens of books that I never would have found time for otherwise, and came away with lots of interesting insights I would have missed out on. So for those of us thirsty for knowledge but short on time, which I think describes just about all of us, I think Blinkist is a perfect fit. Uh, for you fine folks, I recommend Rebecca Traster's All the Single Ladies. She's the author that pretty much every show interviewed to have the Me Too movement explained to them. But of course, there are more than two and a half thousand titles to match every taste. If you want to check it out for yourself, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial, and you can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash best. As you know, the Saudis have long invested millions and millions of dollars on their image in mm -hmm. Western capitals, certainly in Washington. MBS has been particularly fixated on that. And the kind of crown jewel of his image as a reformer has been this theme that he has liberated women from uh, the ban on driving. So it's a historic time in Saudi Arabia. Women here finally hitting the road from Riyadh and across the country. Over 120,000 women have already applied to get their licenses. Women in Saudi Arabia are finally getting behind the wheel. The journey has been long and fraught with challenges. Brave so Saudi women protested for 28 years, demanding the right to drive and risking arrest. But they didn't get anywhere until Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, began shaking up this Islamic kingdom with a series of reforms, allowing cinemas. How real is that, given that activists who are working for that are simultaneously being imprisoned? How much of that is PR? How much of that is a real reform in the broader context of the trends within Saudi Arabia? I was there in Saudi Arabia in June um, when women were given the right to drive. And I cannot tell you the weight that so many women sort of bore as they were forced to swallow that bitter irony of having finally had this breakthrough, but having most of their champions at that point in jail. There was an incredible pomp and circumstance throughout the kingdom. Journalists were flown in, toured around, brought to curated events where they were ensured to see women celebrating, women excited, smiling women, women getting behind the wheels of cars. It was incredibly well photo-opped. And I was really, along with um, so many of the women I interviewed, disheartened and sort of found it hard to believe that there was so much willful ignorance or so much ability to hold such cognitive dissonance. But the Western press went along with it largely. Um, most stories that ran the day that women first took to the road were glowing, just bubbly accounts of how excited, unanimously how excited all of the Saudi women were to be driving, with perhaps a note, a footnote or a sentence that added that there are a few women in jail right now and people are calling for their their release. And even the women who were willing to speak to me about their activism were incredibly nervous about going on the record. And most of them, um, if you look at what they were posting um, on social media at the time, were praising uh, Mohammed bin Salman with every other breath, just as a form of protection in private. They may have other feelings, but there's this sense that you need to be ostentatiously a fan 
of the crown prince. It's not enough to be neutral, but it's um, necessary now to perform your loyalty to the royal family and to MBS in particular in order to stay safe. Even many of those women have since gone offline. Their Twitter accounts have gone dark. There's just this incredible chill through um, not just the activist community, but the Saudi community in general. I'm a journalist all my life. I was the editor of the most progressive Saudi newspaper for a number of years. Jamal Khashoggi was a celebrated columnist in Saudi Arabia and, he says, a supporter of the government. But he is now self-exiled in the U.S. I was ordered to be silent totally. My column was stopped. I even was ordered to stop tweeting. Speaking as an American think tank shortly after Donald Trump's election victory, Jamal commented that Saudi Arabia should be wary of the new president. The authorities in Riyadh didn't take well to what he had to say. They feared it could affect the warming rapport with the new administration, and so they clamped down on Jamal. It was an agony, and I felt insulted. So I think I did the right thing by leaving, even though it does hurt to leave one country. But not everyone shares Jamal's concerns about the Trump presidency, some of his friends included. Oh, they are so in euphoria about it. They are very much enthusiastic. And they think that God has smiled on Saudi Arabia. This euphoria was evident when President Trump visited Saudi Arabia in May 2017, It was his first foreign visit as U.S. president. He was received not as a president, but as if he was the king of America. There were banquets, special dance. There were pictures of him in the roads, a huge picture on the facade of the Intercontinental Hotel. We made him feel the most important man in the world. And I'm sure that very much sank into the ego of Donald Trump. It seems the red carpet treatment has paid off. Saudi Arabia sees Donald Trump as supporting them on some key issues. One of those is the international nuclear accord with Iran, Saudi Arabia's rival in the region. The Saudis hated the agreement which was signed by former President Barack Obama in 2015. Iran agreed to limit its nuclear activities in return for the lifting of economic sanctions – But the Saudis argue that it only enabled Iran to fund militants. Then a year after his visit to Riyadh, Donald Trump pulled out of the deal, much to Saudi Arabia's delight. They think Donald Trump will support Saudi Arabia no matter what. And Donald Trump has sent many messages that I am by your side and that could explain this assertive, impulsive Saudi decisions-making process. Those assertive decisions include Saudi Arabia's war against Houthi rebels in Yemen and the blockade of its neighbour Qatar, which it accuses of funding terrorism. Jamal says that behind the pomp of official visits, there is something else that makes the current relationship special. 
And it is not like the, the old-fashioned American establishment. There is a relationship between families, Mohammed bin Salman families and Donald Trump families. Mohammed bin Salman is the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the man effectively calling the shots in the country today. He is young, ambitious and has a blossoming relationship with President Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner. Last October, Mr Kushner made an unannounced trip to Riyadh, during which the two thirty-somethings are said to have stayed up till the early hours for several nights, swapping stories and planning strategy. There were even rumours of the crown prince bragging that Kushner was in his pocket. I can imagine something of that could have been said because it is important for Saudi Arabia to feel that General Kushner is in the pocket of Saudi Arabia. If he correctly said that, it means that I have the administration by my side and I am the most powerful man in, in the region. Jamal has a word of caution for the crown prince when it comes to his new enthusiasm for the Trump administration. I don't think Saudi Arabia have had a relationship with any American administration as close as this one. But it is a phase. Donald Trump might lose the election in two years. So it is a huge gamble for Saudi Arabia to build on this kind of relationship. So who is in the driving seat right now when it comes to U.S.-Saudi relations? Probably Saudi Arabia, not because it is more powerful. It is just because Donald Trump doesn't have a plan, a strategy in the region. But eventually, they both will realize that they are going nowhere. They are running on empty. So what we are doing right now is just putting our eggs in only one basket. And this is too risky. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT. So how is President Trump, who has bet on him as this Western-friendly reformer, responding to these disappointing turns in this relationship? President Trump, for the most part, has accepted, if not endorsed, some of these moves. Hmm. He tweeted, I have great confidence in King Salman and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They know exactly what they are doing. Some of those they are harshly treating have been milking their country for years. Let's the White House put out a lengthy statement after the incident with the wealthy Saudis being locked up in the Ritz-Carlton, in which he effectively endorsed the prince 
and said he believed in what he was trying to do to clean up his kingdom. He has not publicly chided him for the war in Yemen. He did ask him to try to resolve the dispute with Qatar. But when the Saudis basically defied him and continued with the blockade of Qatar, President Trump went quiet. The Trump administration seems willing to let the prince have plenty of leeway. And why would that be, though? You said earlier that the reason President Trump has bet on MBS is that he provides the justification for the relationship. He is the best possible face for all the flaws and messiness of the Saudi Arabian-United States alliance. But in these actions, he seems to be emerging as a figure that would embarrass the United States. So why would President Trump not attempt to exercise greater influence over his hand-picked leader of Saudi Arabia after this series of events? I think President Trump would argue that Mohammed bin Salman needs the opportunity to establish himself, to consolidate power. He's operating in a tough part of the world. But above all, I think the case he would make is that on the ultimate strategic issue of combating Iran, which is the centerpiece of President Trump's Middle East strategy, Mohammed bin Salman is a critical player. Hmm. Remember, in Yemen, Saudi Arabia is fighting the Houthi rebels. The Houthis are backed by Iran. So it's important in the fight against Iranian proxies in the region to have Saudi Arabia support. And so to the extent that Iran is really the big prize for President Trump, Mohammed bin Salman is his wingman in that effort. Hmm. So what's the message that this inaction by President Trump sends to Mohammed bin Salman if he knows that so long as Iran's being taken care of, everything else will more or less be forgiven? Well, the message is that he has a free hand to do whatever he wants. And that is, above all, the message that MBS has taken for the last 12 months. And that brings us to October 2nd, when Jamal Khashoggi, a dissident Saudi journalist, enters the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The 59-year-old journalist went to the consulate with his Turkish fiance to get documents for their upcoming marriage. The fiance waited outside for five hours until finally calling police. Jamal Khashoggi never comes out of the Saudi consulate. And what we know now is that when he went inside... Khashoggi was murdered inside the consulate, allegedly by a 15-man Saudi team that arrived that day and left Turkey in the evening. He was met by 15 operatives who had been sent from Saudi Arabia with the purpose of interrogating him and perhaps renditioning back to Saudi Arabia, or perhaps simply to kill him and dismember him, which they did with a bone saw that one of the group had brought with them. And his body was taken out of the Saudi consulate in pieces in a crime that has riveted the entire world. The world is watching and waiting. From everything you've told us so far, Mark, President Trump would seem very reluctant to intervene here against Saudi Arabia even over an incident as grotesque and horrifying as this one. So how does the president respond in the immediate aftermath of this? So his immediate inclination is to give 
Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis the benefit of the doubt. He says, I just spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia. I just got off the phone with the king, with the prince. The king firmly denied any knowledge of it. He didn't really know. Maybe, I, I don't want to get into his mind, but it sounded to me like maybe these could have been rogue killers. Who knows? We're gonna they tell me they had nothing to do with it. Later, he acknowledges, well, it'll have to be very severe. I mean, it's it's bad, bad stuff, uh, but we'll see what happens. If this is true, it would be serious. There might be serious consequences. And then he switches yet again and says, well, the intelligence I'm getting on this seems pretty persuasive. And we now know that that intelligence makes a very strong, if circumstantial case, that very senior people in the Saudi royal court ordered this killing. So the president goes through this evolution of reactions right up until we see him, Maggie Haberman, Michael Schmidt, and myself, go in to see him in the Oval Office last Thursday, and he's extremely circumspect on the case. Hmm. He clearly knows a great deal now about what happened in that consulate, but he stops short of saying that he thinks Mohammed bin Salman could have played a role in it, but he does also acknowledge this is a moment that has captured the imagination of the world unfortunately. So in that last word, unfortunately, hmm. you sensed for him the personal stakes. And so I do think he recognizes it. He's puzzling through it. He doesn't seem to have an easy answer. And he sees it as a situation replete with risk. You almost sense that the president wishes that the world wouldn't pay so much attention to this as they hadn't these past episodes relating to Saudi Arabia, that he would have preferred for everyone to have kind of swept this one under the rug and maintained the image of MBS as a reform-minded leader. I think that's right. I think that President Trump views this incident less as a human rights atrocity, less as something he needs to stand against than as a public relations problem. He sees it as fundamentally something that is tarnishing the image of his ally. I think he would have gladly moved on and brushed it under the rug. He recognizes, however, that the circumstances of it make that impossible. Sadly, the victims of the airstrikes in Yemen are, for the most part, invisible to the West. I think everyone can visualize the idea of a man walking into a consulate and being cut up with a bone saw. There's something so visceral and dramatic and horrifying about that image that I think that has made it much harder for President Trump to simply wish it away. This is not going to be wished away. It's simply too appalling for people that it can be dismissed that easily. Trump has so enthusiastically embraced the Saudi royal family. They have the two qualities he admires most in the world, having a lot of money and giving it to him. He basically said as much on the campaign trail. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me, they spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. Yeah, of course. Buying an apartment from Trump is a surefire way to get him to like you, along with wearing one of his hats, being under 25 years old with a size 32 double D, and not being Eric. He's a, he's a simple man with simple tastes. 
And Trump's businessman view of the Saudis as just people with money, don't ask too many questions, has carried over now that he's president. When bin Salman came to the White House, Trump called a press conference in the Oval Office where he boasted about the amount of arms that they were buying from us, essentially using MBS as a human easel. Some of the things that have been approved and are currently under construction and will be delivered to Saudi Arabia very soon, and that's for their protection. But if you look in terms of dollars, $3 billion, $533 million, $525 million, that's peanuts for you. Should increase it. $880 million, $645 million, $6 billion, that's uh, for frigates. First, first. Has any human in the history of the world more obviously just learned a word than he just learned the word frigates? <laughs> frigates! But second, look at Bin Salman's face there as it hits him just how much Trump likes money. It's like the face of a babysitter who realised you can pacify a screaming kid with Twizzlers. Oh, I thought this was going to be difficult, but if all you want is Twizzlers, I've got loads of them here. Take all you want and shut the fuck up. <laughs> and look, look, I am by no means saying that Trump is the first US president to make distasteful arms deals with the Saudis. We've been doing it for decades. The Obama administration still sold them weapons, even as Saudi Arabia got involved in Yemen. But Trump has continued doing so, even a signed mount of Saudi recklessness in airstrikes. Two months ago, they dropped an American-made bomb on a school bus full of children. But just a month later, Trump's defense secretary said that Saudi Arabia was doing everything it could to prevent civilian casualties, and we carried on supporting them. My point here is, at every turn, Trump has gone out of his way to accommodate the Saudis. He doesn't even have an ambassador to the kingdom. Our relationship with them is being handled personally by Jared, Ivanka Trump's real doll. And, <laughs> and the Saudis seem understandably very happy with that situation. Kushner took an unannounced trip to Saudi Arabia in 2017 to meet with the young prince. Months later, MBS reportedly boasted that Kushner was, quote, in his pocket, which Bin Salman denied. Yeah, of course he's in their pocket. He's fucking Jared. That face was born to be manoeuvred into someone's pocket. His Secret Service nickname is probably Wallet Keys and a Little Bit of Lint. So... So while the fact that the US has enabled Saudi Arabia is nothing new, the extent to which Trump is prioritising money above all else is really dangerous. Is it any wonder that they have been emboldened here? After MBS's roundup of his rivals, Trump tweeted his support. After his blockade of Qatar, Trump, for some reason, took credit for it. And that kind of shit has consequences. Time and again, Trump has chosen extreme friendliness with MBS, a leader who, in the words of one Saudi critic, has created a climate of fear and intimidation, going on to say, we Saudis deserve better. That critic was Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who is widely thought to have been murdered in the Saudi consulate. And while Trump has said that Saudi Arabia faces severe punishment if it's proven that they were behind this, does anyone really believe that that is something that he's honestly committed to? A much more revealing response came in the Oval Office after the news of Hashoki's disappearance broke. Just watch him render in real time the cost-benefit analysis that he was applying to the situation. Again, this took place in Turkey. And to the best of our knowledge, uh, Khashoggi is not a United States citizen. Is that right? Or is that right? It's a permanent resident. Okay. We don't like it, John. We don't like it. And we don't like it even a little bit. 
But as to whether or not we should stop $110 billion from being spent in this country, knowing they have four or five alternatives, two very good alternatives, that would not be acceptable to me. He is openly demonstrating to the entire world and to Saudi Arabia specifically that arms deal much more important than butchered journalist. Again, look, every U.S. leader has chosen to make compromises when it comes to Saudi Arabia, but Trump may well be the first one who doesn't see it as a compromise. Because he and MBS are similar in some of the worst possible ways. They both love money. They're both a product of inherited wealth. They both love self-promotion, yet disdain the press. And they even both share a design aesthetic that amounts to Elvis tries to remember what Versailles looks like, but can't. (laughs) And Trump's intense bromance with MBS is bad news, because when you set no boundaries on an oppressive regime, they are always going to ask themselves, how much can we get away with here? And as we saw this week, the answer to that may well be pretty much anything. Paul, what do you say to this argument? that the U.S. must continue doing these arms sales to Saudi Arabia because it's a key part of the U.S. economy that creates jobs? Well, this kind of is a core question. Uh, who, who benefits not just from the relationship between U.S. and Saudi Arabia, because to look at that relationship, you have to step back. Who in the United States benefits from America playing the role of asserting global hegemony? Uh, if you're going to be the big power around the whole globe, that means you've got to region by region control each region. And, of course, regions that have oil are even more important. Um, and this goes in a second. I'll talk a little bit about the roots of this. But a trillion-dollar military budget, and it's probably more than that, um, the, the kind of expenditure it takes to assert U.S. control globally, and then with a very specific uh, emphasis on the Middle East, obviously because of the oil and the arms purchases, Um, who benefits? Well, of course, some sections of the American people do benefit. I mean, people working in arms manufacturing enterprises benefit some. Um, A certain amount of the plunder of global wealth does trickle down to some extent, although less and less extent than it used to, to, you know, working people. There, you can't say that a section of the American working class and broader population doesn't benefit at all from this kind of plunder and control and domination, especially, you can say, the Middle East because of the, the oil. Um, but who really benefits in a much bigger way is obviously the military-industrial complex, the people that owns the arms manufacturers that are selling these weapons, uh, and and the uh, fossil fuel industry uh, certainly in the past has uh, benefited through the direct uh, access to Saudi oil and the the special relationship, um, and now benefit in terms of controlling uh, and cooperating with the Saudis on oil prices. The geopolitical control the American uh, elites get uh, through uh, dominating, controlling the region and and who gets to buy Saudi oil. 
So, and the most important point is you take that trillion plus dollars year after year, much of which goes towards the Middle East. We know Israel is the biggest recipient of military aid. Um, If you took that same money and applied it to domestic spending, uh, study after study has shown that if you put the money that's in the military budget towards schools and infrastructure and building up a domestic economy, that that'd be way better for the uh, majority of the American people. It's not as profitable for these sections of, of the elites that control arms and, and fossil fuel. So who benefits? Who benefits is the elites, the American oligarchs, uh, benefit from the point of view of geopolitics because they want to control the world. And more importantly, you know, arms manufacturing and and, and fossil fuel. And arms manufacturing is to a large extent arms sales fueling the relationships. But you need to back up a little bit. Because in the, it, to really understand the U.S.-Saudi relationship, you've got to go back to 1945 uh, when Roosevelt uh, has a meeting with Prince Ibn Saud on an American, I think it's a destroyer, a boat on in Bitter Lake. And Roosevelt is now charting what the world's going to look like, especially the Middle East, post-World War II. And Roosevelt makes a deal with Ibn Saud, and this meeting's well-documented. And essentially, as the, the Saud family, the, the House of Saud, can rule Saudi Arabia in exchange for American military and political support. And the deal is uh, the Saud family has to serve American interests. Um, now, understand, the, by, the, by the end of World War II, it's clear direct colonialism just isn't going to work anymore. You, like the United States can't just rule Saudi Arabia uh, directly, uh, nor anywhere else. The, the British Empire had, is, had fallen apart, was going to continue to fall apart, the French, uh, the Belgians. Uh, it was clear that you know, the direct ownership of countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America was just too expensive, and you were constantly dealing with rebellion and people organizing revolutions and, and national liberation struggles. So you need elites in these countries to rule on the empire's behalf. And Roosevelt constructs this. Um, there's a very interesting quote from Eisenhower, which really lays bare what the strategy was. Uh, Eisenhower says, we need the House of Saud. We need the Saudi ruling family because of their role in defending Mecca, the, the most important shrine in Islam. The uh, deal of the Saud family with the Wahhab religious leaders, Wahhab religious leaders, and that the the Saudi royal family will assert their uh, religious ideological leadership throughout the region to do what? To oppose nationalism, for example, uh, in, in all across the, uh, the Middle East, there was an upsurge of national liberation, people saying, listen, these oil resources should belong to the people of the region, not just to serve the, the U.S. and the West. To oppose, Eisenhower says, there's a direct quote, he says, oppose nationalism, oppose, of course, the real enemy, socialism, and that doesn't mean the Soviet Union. That means peoples aspiring for independence and socialism in their own countries. And three, Nasserism. 
And the rise of Nasser as the leader of Egypt in, in post-World War II and, you know, into the 50s and into the 60s, uh, Nasser represented a quasi kind of socialism, but mostly a nationalist who wasn't going to simply be a, a, a new neo-colony of the United States and was also playing the Soviet Union and the Americans off against each other. So the Sauds were going to play this role to help manage the reason, region on behalf of the empire. And you can see this in more modern times uh, very directly with what happened in Afghanistan, uh, where the uh, United States, one, wanted to draw the uh, Russians, the Soviet Union, into kind of an endless war in Afghanistan. A communist party, Afghan communist party government comes to power in Afghanistan. And the Americans start arming uh, a jihadist movement from the rural Afghanistan who were opposed to educating women and schools and such. And who is behind the scenes pulling the strings together with the United States and the CIA? Well, of course, it's the Sauds, the Saudis. And it's the Saudis that send bin Laden uh, to Afghanistan. It's the Saudis that finance and develop these madrasas in Pakistan that are uh, educating young people in the most extreme form of, uh, uh, I guess, a militant Islam, you can call it, but a fanaticism uh, that uh, the Saudis finance. Uh, the Taliban comes to power uh, in Afghanistan to a large extent, uh, nurtured and guided by Sauds, Saudi money and Saudi influence together with the Pakistani ISI. So the Saudis are supposed to manage the region on behalf of the American empire. And th there's no evidence this serves the American people, but it certainly serves the American oligarchy. Here's the cold, hard fact. Trump's position on Saudi Arabia right now is absolutely consistent with U.S. policy and posture toward Saudi Arabia for decades under Republican administrations and Democratic administrations, going all the way back to FDR. The 70-year-old Ibn Saud goes aboard the cruiser to meet Mr. Roosevelt. The basis of the discussion was that henceforth the United States would provide the royal family with protection in return for an exclusive American right to develop Saudi Arabia's oil. Next day, the scene is Washington after His Majesty makes a flight in the president's personal plane. The king is the first state visitor of the year and the first chief of state ever to be met at the airport by President Eisenhower. Uh, Your Majesty... On behalf of the American people, I welcome you to this country. President Kennedy pays a courtesy call on the leader of the oil-rich country to wish him a speedy recovery. When I see His Majesty, I plan in addition to discuss strengthening the already close and cultural relations that exist between Saudi Arabia and the United States. On behalf of President Nixon, I want to express the great stress we place on the, on, on strengthening the ties that exist between our two countries. It's with the greatest degree of pleasure and pride 
that on behalf of the people of the United States, I welcome to our country a good friend who represents a nation that has, through the years, grown closer and closer to us. Well, I want to express my gratitude to the members of the United States Senate for their approval of the sale of the AWACS defense system to Saudi Arabia. Let me be clear. The sovereign independence of Saudi Arabia is of vital interest to the United States. The United States and Saudi Arabia have long enjoyed close relations. We have especially strong commercial relations in the field of civil aviation. With today's announcement, this proud tradition will continue well into the next century. Close economic ties complement the important political and strategic relationship that we have and that we value greatly with Saudi Arabia. Let's also remember that 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9/11 were from Saudi Arabia. 3,000 Americans died. Yet this is how then Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld responded when that information about the Saudi hijackers first came to light. Instead of threatening Saudi Arabia or sanctioning Saudi Arabia, attacked whoever it was that leaked the fact that 15 of the hijackers were Saudis. I think that something like that ending up out is kind of um, undoubtedly by somebody who wanted to make themselves feel important, that they knew what was going on and that therefore they would tell someone else. And it uh, and no lives are lost. On the other hand, when when uh, classified information is released that that could affect the lives of men and women in uniform that that could inhibit and make more difficult the task of the United States of America in tracking down terrorists uh, and 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 in fact actively assist terrorists in figuring out what it is we're thinking and, and doing i think it it is uh, criminal now under the bush administration the the house of saud and the house of bush they were as close as could be bush holding his hands with with saudi officials one of whom was actually nicknamed Bandar Bush because of how close the Saudi royals are to the Bush family and this support this relationship continued under Barack Obama's administration but Obama took it even further his white house expanded to record levels the commitments of US arms sales to Saudi Arabia the United States and Saudi Arabia have uh, an extraordinary uh, friendship and relationship Uh, that dates back to uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, and uh, King Faisal, and we are uh, continuing to build that relationship during a very challenging time. The history of U.S. policy in Saudi Arabia is one based on oil. It's based on the politics of U.S. empire and militarism. It's based on massive contracts for U.S. defense corporations. It's based on military bases, on wars of aggression. It's based on the long-standing American love affair with anti-democratic despots who can be used to crush dissent. This has never been a relationship based on respect for human rights. It's never been a relationship based on peace. So when Donald Trump says plainly, bluntly, that he wants to be careful not to be too hard on the Saudis, for butchering a journalist for a major US newspaper because of a fictitious number of US jobs that are going to be created by Saudi defense or arms purchases Trump isn't somehow the horrible skunk at the peaceful empire party no he's one of the many US presidential co-hosts of this multi-decade Saudi palooza 
Trump states in clear terms a U.S. policy that Democratic and Republican administrations have adopted, but that his predecessors rarely, if ever, wanted uttered in public. And that is that no matter how heinous the Saudis are on anything related to human rights, there will be no actual consequences. At the same time, this isn't a one-way street. The Saudi royals have regularly played Washington in oil politics, in regional crises and wars, in bad or fabricated or politically motivated so-called intelligence sharing. Saudi Arabia is vitally important to U.S. nationalists, to American exceptionalists, to Democratic and Republican administrations. At the same time, it is a good thing that the U.S.-Saudi relationship is being examined. It's good that politicians who have a track record filled with gushing love for the Saudis appear to be changing their tune. But is it real? I hope so. But history cautions against such hope. And let us not forget, as we feel the horror of the torture and brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, that the Saudis have also learned from the U.S., The U.S. has killed journalists. The U.S. has run global torture programs. The U.S. has used its embassies and consulates to run black operations. The U.S. has supported the imprisonment and targeting of journalists in the Middle East. That includes, by the way, President Obama, who actually intervened in Yemen to make sure that a Yemeni journalist who exposed Obama's first bombing in Yemen in December 2009, was kept in prison. That journalist's crime was revealing that U.S. missiles, cluster bombs, had killed three dozen women and children in an operation directly authorized by Barack Obama. And Obama's former CIA director, John Brennan, he's now an NBC and MSNBC commentator. For decades, Brennan was one of the closest American officials to the Saudi royal family. He played a major role in forging and expanding the U.S. operations with the Saudis. He worked hand in glove with the Saudis as he expanded Obama's drone wars. John Brennan has been part of the problem. He's not some objective expert or human rights advocate. And as Brennan has been speaking on cable TV, he always somehow fails to mention his own horse in this race. Some of the very people including Mohammed bin Nayef, who was one of John Brennan's closest friends in Saudi Arabia, were essentially overthrown by Trump's new friend, Mohammed bin Salman. You have to understand this context to get what Brennan is actually saying when he appears these days on TV. It's really going to be up to the congressional intelligence committees to demand immediate briefings from CIA and others about what we know and what MBS's role was in that. So I don't think, in fact, MBS is going to get out of this predicament. In fact, in many respects, I think the Saudi government has to decide between Mohammed Salman and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been fundamental to the kingdom for the past 85 years mm-hmm. since its founding. Got them and through 9-11? It, it did. Here is a haunting question that we should all be asking. How many other Jamal Khashoggi's have there been, but they haven't made it into the news? How many dirty, murderous deeds have the Saudis and other U.S. client states committed with the full knowledge of the CIA? This is a scandal right now because we know about it. 
and because it happened inside of a consulate. But how many murders have been covered up by the Saudis? And what did John Brennan or other officials know about those? Or others within the CIA or elite political circles? So yes, bring out the outrage. Bring out the calls for action against the Saudi royals and Mohammed bin Salman. But let us not mistake political rage at Trump or selective opposition to this president for actually caring about human rights or the crimes of the despotic regime in Saudi Arabia, or even actually wanting the Saudis to face consequences, unless those who have fawned over the Saudis for decades, who coddled them, armed them, whitewashed their crimes, used their intelligence, used their territory to wage wars, sold them countless weapons, until those people acknowledge the role that they played in propping up the autocratic Saudi regime, then these denunciations, this analysis, the threats, the calls for action, those are as meaningless as the Saudi cover story on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Trump is not clean in any of this. He's dirty. He is filthy. He's also a terrible, refreshing, undeniable public manifestation of what the U.S.-Saudi relationship has always been. And for a man who lies constantly in the big picture here about the relationship with Saudi Arabia, Trump is sometimes bluntly honest about it. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Empire Files, laying out the broad strokes of the history of Saudi Arabia, the inquiry in two parts, and with the help of the late Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, answered the question, who is in the driver's seat in the U.S.-Saudi relationship? On the media, took a look back at the last 70 years of American journalists touting so-called reformers in Saudi Arabia. Intercepted explained why Saudi Arabia allowing women to drive, while real, is also a smokescreen for different forms of oppressive governing. The Daily explained why Trump so desperately wants to turn a blind eye to the crimes of Saudi Arabia. Last Week Tonight similarly discussed Trump's relationship with the Saudis. The Real News spoke with Paul Jay about the history and hidden reasons behind the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And finally, we just heard Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted drawing a continuous through line of American support for Saudi Arabia from FDR to today. Members will be getting a huge bonus episode with a bunch of additional clips on Saudi Arabia that I just couldn't possibly fit in the show, uh, but are well worth a listen. Uh, there will be additional talk about how the Saudi prince consolidated his power by eliminating his rivals while getting the news to report it as cleaning up corruption. There will be a story of how Saudi Arabia threatened to withhold money from a program that helps save the lives of children in order to force the UN to take them off the child killer list. Irony alert. And Paul Jay has more to say about the mechanics of how empires sustain themselves. It's all really great stuff, so to hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you. 
Hi, this is Jill from Connecticut. I decided to download Outvote after hearing the clip about it, and I had kind of a strange experience. I'm 45, and most of my friends are in their 40s or 50s, and I texted like 40 of them, and I had a really good reaction. They said, thanks, yeah, I'm voting, great, you know, where'd you get this app? Um, but I didn't have any complaints. And then I went on Tumblr, where I have a large following as a feminist blogger. And Tumblr is mostly like teenagers and 20-year-olds, college age. And they had a really different reaction to Outvote. I kind of briefly explained what it was. And they were really outraged. And they said, how dare you encourage me to hack into my friend's voting history and take over and bully them into voting using an invasion of privacy hacking. And I was like, well, it's really not hacking because it's public knowledge, but they just found it really creepy. So I discovered there was a bit of a generational divide in using this app. So I was just wondering if anyone had a similar experience with Outvote and uh, that's all. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And especially thanks to Jill for her voicemail. It's a very interesting question. Uh, I can say right off the bat that I know that the people she encountered are not the only ones who feel that way. I, the only other comment I got on the topic, actually everyone can read, it's posted on the blog on the Strategies for the Left episode where this question came up, uh, and the person there commented saying that compulsory voting and use of public voter data for you know to sort of socially pressure people to vote uh, both were authoritarian. Now, I disagree with that, but uh, clearly some people do feel that way, and it's interesting. I've been having some thoughts about privacy recently, and I thought this was going to be a great opportunity to share those thoughts, but the absolute honest truth is that I already recorded a commentary for this show, and then when I listened back to it, I wasn't happy with it. I, I don't feel like I have firmly grasped what I'm trying to say well enough yet. Uh, so instead, I want to lay out a few things for you and and then ask you some questions, and we're, we're going to sort this all out together. So in addition to the compulsory voting and the uh, voter data issue, let, let's throw a couple more stories into the hopper. Uh, I was reminded of this article. I had never heard of this before, but this is a New York Times article just from uh, November 1st, and the title is Happy National Jealousy Day. Finland bears its citizens' taxes. And just the first couple of paragraphs read, Pamplona can boast of the running of the bulls, Rio de Janeiro has carnival, but Helsinki is alone in observing National Jealousy Day when every Finnish citizen's taxable income is made public at 8 a.m. sharp. The annual November 1st data dump is the starting gun for a countrywide game of who's up and who's down, which tussled tech entrepreneur has sold his company, which Instagram celebrity is in fact broke, which retired executive is weaseling out of his tax liabilities. Essa Saarinen, a professor of philosophy at Aalto University in Helsinki, described it as, quote, a fairly positive form of gossip, unquote. 
Finland is unusual even among the Nordic states in turning its release of personal tax data to comply with government transparency laws into a public ritual of comparison. Though some complain that the tradition is an invasion of privacy, most say it has helped the country resist the trend toward growing inequality that has crept across the rest of Europe. We're looking at the gap between normal people and those rich, rich people. Is it getting too wide? Said Tuomo Pelletian, obviously mispronounced, an investigative reporter at Helsingin Sanomat, also mispronounced, the country's largest daily newspaper. When we do publish the figures, the people who have lower salaries start to think, why do my colleagues make more, he said. Our work has the effect that people are paid more. Employers, he said, have to behave better than in conditions where there is no transparency. And then obviously goes on from there. So that's just one example of something that seems like a blatant uh, invasion of privacy, but there seem to be some upsides. So keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, that also reminded me of another trend that I think has been happening, which is payroll transparency in private companies. So in, instead of it happening at the national level, uh, companies will hire people and let them know when you work here, everyone will know what you get paid and you will know what everyone else gets paid. And the initial reaction to that in America, where people really value their privacy, is sort of a freak out like, oh, that seems really sketchy and scary. And I don't know if I don't do, do I want everyone knowing what I make? And uh, it, there's a little panic about it. But when it's actually implemented, people tend to like it. And so I, I just did a super quick Google about it and came up with an entrepreneur.com article with the title, Four Ways Payroll Transparency Benefits Companies with Nothing to Hide. Number one, it enforces equality. When payroll is transparent internally, suspicions of discrimination, favoritism, and general unfairness are put to rest. Number two, it motivates employees because they can compare themselves to others and sort of uh, decide, oh, I could move up so they might work harder. Number three, it can help reduce turnover. With payroll transparency, gone are the days of feeling cheated or undervalued, uh, situations that can cause a person to uh, quit their company. And finally, it promotes a culture of trust. So we have a whole bunch of examples here, and I would love your input on all of them. So the question's for you. Public voter data period. Is that an invasion of privacy or no? Just the fact that voter data is public. Number two, using that public voter data to encourage voting. Is that an invasion of privacy and authoritarianism or no? And if it encourages more people to vote, does that outweigh the negatives of the invasion of privacy? Number three, a situation like Finland where the yearly tax records are made public. Is that an invasion of privacy but if it's true that that is a major factor in helping them uh, reduce the inequality that is so detrimental to society, then does the good outweigh the harm? And finally, when a private company does sort of the same thing, but it's private instead of a government, does that change your perspective of it? Uh, I mean, I suppose you could say that if you live in Finland, you don't have a choice about what they do with your tax data. Uh, you do have a choice whether you work at a company like that or not. So uh, obviously there are some differences, but you know, how, how does that make you feel? A private company making their payroll transparent, and is that an invasion of privacy? But again, does the good outweigh the harm? 
And as I said, I've been thinking about privacy recently, uh, sort of how it relates to happiness and, and living a good and healthy life. How much privacy do you need? Is there such a thing as too much privacy? So I, I want to share all of my thoughts on that, but I'm going to hold until a future episode because I would love your input on this, frankly, to help me solidify my own thoughts about it and uh, and just get more input. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.